Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey everybody, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again this month. This time, we've got an amazing episode for you with the mighty Chuck Lavelle, who is an incredible piano and organ player and one of my favorite musicians of all time. He was in the Allman Brothers, for Pete's sake. Oh, and he's also in a band called the Rolling Stones, for Pete's sake. He's been in the Stones since 1982. How crazy is that? Anyway, I've been trying to get Chuck to come on the show for a while, been back and forth with him, and that pesky band of his, the Rolling Stones, keeps whisking him away to far and foreign lands to play gigs. But I nailed him down and we had a chance to get down to some business and talk about some stuff. And so what happened was I got Chuck on the line and we started blabbing and I started grilling him about a million things. And before I knew it, it was like a couple hours. So I edited it down a little bit but basically kept it pretty intact, but it's still pretty long. And so I have to break these up. Uh, for uh, There's a bunch of technical reasons why I can't have a two-hour-long podcast. So uh, you're going to hear the first half this week right now, and then I'm not going to make you wait a month for part two. Part two will come out one week from today. So uh, that's what's happening. All right, got it? Cool. So anyway, as I said before, I'm not going to go into all kinds of detail about his bio. You can find that out for yourself if you don't know Chuck and his music already. Uh, What I will tell you is lately, Chuck has been doing a couple of really interesting projects aside from working with the Stones, which include a TV show called America's Forests, in which Chuck gets to explore his conservation side. He's been into that for a long time. And in fact, as you'll hear in, in this month's episode, he was about to basically quit music to become 
to dedicate himself to the conservation of American forests. And on the day he was going to quit music, he got a call from the Stones. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so there's that. And then he also has a brand new record called Chuck Gets Big. And it's him playing with a big band, a horn band. And uh, they're German. And he did it in Frankfurt a few years ago. But this record is just coming out now. You'll realize in the conversation that I have not heard the record yet. But now I have. Now it's a little bit later. And I've and the record's just come out. So go check that out. Chuck Gets Big. He's had an incredible career. And we got to talk about all kinds of stuff, including some of my favorite records of all time. So please enjoy my conversation with Chuck Lavelle. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, You can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, Also, this year, we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right, then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. You're the perfect archetype for my show. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And uh... What I'd like to start with is um, just talking about being a, a, a sideman first and foremost, because you really are, uh, and I, you know, I'm not just trying to like, uh, blow smoke at you. I'm just saying like, you are really like the ultimate sideman in a lot of ways. And uh, I think that most people think that being a sideman, people feel like their role in that job is essentially to be invisible and honor the artist they, they're hired to work for. And obviously you do that really well, but you've sort of taken it, the whole concept to a new level because not only have you been that role for some of the biggest bands in the world, but you've basically become a band member to some of those groups, some of my favorite groups of all time. So I'm just wondering what what's the secret there? I'm guessing it's a combination of being awesome, which... We all know that you're a great player, but you got to be a great hang. You got to be a great hang too. So uh, maybe you could just talk about a little bit about like the way that you've managed to stick with some of these projects for so long. Uh, well, first of all, I have to say that um, I have been so fortunate in my career, Steve. You know, I, early on in the '70s with the uh, Allman Brothers band, and even before that, uh, working with some acts that were on Capricorn Records playing with Dr. John. He, he, of course, was a big mentor to me, learned so much from him. And, and then, uh, you know, moving forward to when I had the band Sea level and, mm-hmm. 
and then on to the years uh, that thank heaven that I still have a gig with the Stones, <laughs> which is awesome and fun and uh, tremendous. And then in between working with artists like uh, Eric Clapton and George Harrison and John Mayer and a couple yeah. of years ago with David Gilmore. So first of all, I'm just, you know, really fortunate to have these positions with these guys. Um, you know, I, when you, when you ask, how do you get these kind of gigs or, you know, uh, there's no real secret sauce in it, except to say, yeah, you gotta be a great listener and, and understand what the artist is looking for in any particular song or any particular situation tour or whatever. And, uh, you know, do they want you to step up? Do they want you to stay back a little bit? You got to be sensitive to these things and try to please the artist. Yeah. Uh, but you want to contribute, you know, you really, it's, it's really important to speak your mind to say, Hey, look, you know, you may not agree, but, uh, I think this, and, uh, and sometimes they agree and sometimes they don't, but I think it's important to speak up when, when you feel strongly about an arrangement or about instrumentation or anything like that. And then, you know, there's the personality part, and I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, my dad uh, told me at a young age, you make your own luck. And I think that means in part um, knowing when to speak up, knowing when to be silent, knowing, uh, you know, how to get along with people. Uh, Hey, have a sense of humor, have some fun. Uh, everybody loves to smile and have a good time. So I think it's a combination of all these things. You mentioned, um, having the wherewithal to, to speak up in a, in a recording situation or even a live situation and, and say, Hey, I think this would be cool. Now I would imagine that that's something that you're really great and confident at now, but I, but like back in 73 or whatever, when you're, uh, sort of in an earlier stage of your career, was that something that you were doing then and comfortable then, or was that something that's really evolved with you as a musician and a sideman? I, I, I think, you know, early on, uh, because, you know, the thinking back of 1972 is when I got the gig with the Allman Brothers band and we recorded, well, yeah. we were recording Greg's first solo record with a different set of musicians. And that was the record called laid back. Uh, great record. Oh, thanks man. And then just to, to fill in the blanks, uh, what happened was, during the course of those recording sessions with Greg, all of a sudden, um, about halfway through those sessions, these jam sessions started ha- happening after hours. And so all the Almond Brothers band would come down, Dickie and Barry Oakley and J-Mo and Butch. And, uh, and so we started just having, you know, pick a key and go, right? Or, or anybody got an right. idea, or maybe we play a blues or whatever. But they were just fun jam sessions. And, uh, then after two or three weeks of this, I got a call to go, uh, meet with Phil Walden, who was the manager and owner of Capricorn yeah. records. And, you know, not knowing, I figured, did I do something wrong? <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> I walk into the office and there's all the guys in the Almond brothers band and the shoe dropped and they said, listen, we feel like things have gone well. Would you be interested in joining our band? And of course we wow. know the answer to that. But getting back to your point, um, yeah, you know, when we were recording Brothers and Sisters and you take a song like Jessica, it was, you know, certainly Dickie Betts' uh, uh, song. Uh, He was the writer on it, but uh, I contributed to the arrangement and I wanted to speak up and, and, you know, do some things that I thought the guys, um, you know, that, that, that I could 
have some musical conversations with them, you know, and, and not just lay back and, and play pads and chords, you know? So I, I think right. it's, it's important to, you know, again, it, it's a feel thing, isn't it? You know, when you're in a session, you kind of get a vibe. Uh, okay. This artist and this producer is looking for me to come up with something, you know, or maybe you go in and they say, listen, this is it. This is the arrangement. This is the way it's going to go. Uh, you know, Please, let's stick to that and do the best you can. And hey, that's what you go with. Right. Yeah, yeah. We're sort of talking about the context of, of being a, a side guy through your career. Let's just jump ahead for a sec. Like, I, I do want to address all that stuff. But just let, let's jump right up to the to the current time where suddenly, um, now I don't know much about your, your current thing, but I know that it's a big band project. And um, really, through your career, you haven't done a lot of stuff under your own name. So maybe can you just like, jump out of the sideman role for a second and tell me about your, your current project, this big band thing and what it's all about and what that experience was like compared to being a sideman for, for the bulk of your career. Well, sure. And um, again, I feel really, really fortunate to be able to do both. You know, when the stones are down, uh, I get some time to focus on um, you know my own stuff or perhaps uh, some sessions with some other people, whatever. But uh, to the current project, which is called Chuck Gets Big, <laughs> and it is with a uh, crackerjack 17-piece brass orchestra from uh, Germany. Wow. Yeah. It's a long story, and I'll make it short. I, I got the invitation to a friend to come and perform with the uh, what's called the Frankfurt Radio Big Band uh, that are out okay. of Frankfurt, Germany. And there's a conglomerate called HR that is kind of like the public radio and television of America, but you know, they're obviously in Germany and they maintain a full orchestra, 30 piece orchestra and a big band, a 17 piece big band. And so, uh, through a friend, the invitation came, Hey, would you like to come and be a guest artist for a live performance? Um, if you send us MP3s, we'll have some arrangers do the work. And you show up, we'll have a rehearsal beforehand, and then we'll have a rehearsal with you, and then we'll do a concert. And that's what we did. And man, I got to tell you, Steve, when, uh, and, and by the way, the material is a mishmash. There's a couple of Stone songs on there. There's like Tumbling Dies from Honky Tonk Women. There's okay. Statesboro Blues, yeah. you know, from Allman Brothers Era. There's some sea level stuff, Living in a Dream and King Grand. And oh, so it's sort of touching. It's sort of touching on your your whole career, your whole discography, in a way. Absolutely, and there's some uh, you know some songs that I wrote on my solo record. So uh, there was a dozen tracks, and they had three different arrangers uh, do arrangements for them. And Steve, when I walked in that room and heard these guys play, it bowled me over, man. That was like really? whoa! After I, all of a sudden, I, I was in Duke Ellington's band or Count Basie or you know Ray Charles when he had a big brass band. Oh I mean, they God. were so sharp, man. My first feeling after hearing these arrangements was like, okay, man, you got to step it up. <laughs> you know, you got to show <laughs> up for this gig, baby. You know, you can't be shucking and jiving. And, uh, so they were yeah, kicking yeah. my rear end, man. That's wicked. Are you singing on it too? Or what, or what's the, is oh, it yeah. instrumental or what's the, Oh okay. yeah. It's, uh, there's, <sighs> let me see two or three instrumentals. I can't uh, remember exactly off the top of my head, but the rest of them are, are all vocals. And, uh, and it's so much fun. And to complete the uh, what we did with them, and by the way, this was seven years ago, uh, back in 20, oh, okay. 2011, and I had released 
a record called Live in Germany with a smaller band, with a five-piece band. So I didn't, and it had some of the same songs on it. So I didn't want to replicate it and put it out with the big band arrangement immediately. So I sat on the files all these years. Yeah. And then earlier this year, I said, well, let me check these things out. And, and I was able, to, number <laughs> one, to, to lease the um, project from the HR company and uh, then took them into the studio. And I was just uh, blown away with how well recorded they were. I mean, the German engineering is amazing anyway. Yeah, those Germans, those Germans know what they're doing in the, in the, in the studio. <laughs> Holy moly. And so during the process of mixing and, and examining these files, I said to the engineer, uh, let's see if we can take the audience out of this. We have like about 600 people there at this live concert in this incredible castle setting outdoors. And I said, let's just play with it and see. And sure enough, it was so well recorded and isolated that we were able to take the audience out and make it a studio record, or at least like a studio wow. record. So, so that's what it is, and that's what we did. But it was all done at the gig, or did you add tracks to it in the studio? No, it was all live. Uh, it's all the real deal. I think I added some harmony on uh, choruses of uh, Honky Tonk Women and Drumlin' Dice uh, just to, to, you know, to bolster up the vocals but uh we did have two girls that were singing and uh, so i just added uh -huh. some uh, male vocals to the what they were doing and other than that it's all you know it's all completely live amazing and is it is it just you and the orchestra or is there a rhythm section as well uh well there's you know bass drums guitar uh, and okay. then, and then all the brass. And do you have a band, like, is there a Chuck Lavelle band, uh, that, that is, you know, those players, or do you use German guys when you go to Germany and stuff like that? Or how do you roll? Well, as you can imagine, it's a challenge to replicate this. I mean, yeah. you know, it's very expensive to take 17 pieces on tour. And, and so I, you know, it, it's not practical for me to do that, but what I am doing is some select shows. I'm the, the uh, headliner for the Savannah Jazz Festival uh, September 29 in Savannah, Georgia, and that's with the Savannah Jazz Orchestra, which is a big band. So I've got the charts, and I'll oh, be cool. yeah, I'll just you know we'll do the same thing. They'll rehearse once without me and once with me, and then we'll do the gig. Uh, one other yeah. thought I had that I'm exploring, and I don't know how feasible it is, but. I had the thought of, uh, wouldn't it be fun to work with some of these universities, colleges and universities that have band programs that have a band of that nature uh, as part of their program? And, you know, you go to the University of Miami or Texas, uh, where, where they, wherever they have strong music programs and see if they would be interested in working with me as a guest artist in that fashion. If you don't mind just switching gears here, I'd like to talk about your your early uh, your early years, even before the the almonds and stuff like that. Like I, I know you grew up in Alabama, but could you tell me a little bit about your um, I guess your childhood and your involvement in music and how you got into playing piano and keyboards? Yeah, um, well, my mother played the piano. I was the baby of the family. There was three kids. My uh, there's quite a few years difference. My brother's fourteen years my elder, and my sister's five years my elder. Oh. So. Uh, being the baby of the family, oftentimes it was just me and mom in the house, dad be out working. And so she, you know, she wasn't a professional or a teacher or anything, but she could read music and play. And so, um, oftentimes that was my entertainment. I'd tug on her skirt and mama played me something. And I, <laughs> you know, I was just fascinated, man. What looking at her hands moving up and down that keyboard and, you know, hearing the harmonies and, and the melodies and the rhythms. And so as a form of, uh, 
from time to time as a form of babysitting, she would get me up on the piano, show me very simple things, you know, to occupy me. And then she'd say, well, Chuck, you just, you just sit here and you can make something up or you can try to learn a song that maybe you've heard. Uh, I'll go around here and do some work and I'll be listening. But, you know, you just sit here and fool around. And at a very young age, having that encouragement to improvise and just mm -hmm. have fun with the instrument, you know, there was no pressure. It was not like I had to learn Bach or Beethoven or anything. Um, it, it was just a, a fun exercise. And I'm sure it was something psychologically between mother and child, you know, mother and son yeah. um, at play as well. So anyway, as, as time went on, and this is when I'm, you know, six, seven years old, as time went on, I, I just kind of kept it up. And then rock and roll comes into the picture when I'm 12, 13 <laughs> and Beatles, Stones, all that jazz, you know, all the British invasion. I had, had learned to play guitar from my uh, cousin. And there was also uh, an influence from the folk era. You know, there's uh, artists like Chad and Jeremy and Kingston Trio and New Christie Minstrels. And, you know, there was that show Hootenanny that we would all watch. So, yeah. You know, all of a sudden, the influences became quite diverse. You know, you had the folk thing, you had the rock and roll thing. And then, of course, you had indigenous music from the South. You had rhythm and blues and soul, uh, you know, the sure. Wilson Pickets and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, of course, and Mecca of uh, Southern recording. And as time went on and I got older, I began to, you know, work my way into a session here and there. It might be in Birmingham. And by the way, this is in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, is where I grew up for the most part. Uh, there okay. wasn't a, there wasn't a whole lot of you know studio action in Tuscaloosa, but there was it being the uh, you know where the University of Alabama is. There was a lot of opportunities for live music. You, we played at the Quadrangle right, right. for free. We played fraternity parties, you know, that kind of thing. What kind of outfits were you playing in, in those days? Like, did you have a, a band that was doing like fraternity parties and stuff and playing around the college? Yeah, it was mostly like five piece bands. Uh, I wasn't doing a lot of singing back then. I did a little bit, but, you know, there were a couple of singers locally that uh, were better than I was at it. And uh, so it was mostly playing piano, organ and a little bit of guitar and various bands and it wasn't just one single band you know things moved around a little bit as, as the years okay. went on and the first yeah. uh, significant session i had was when i was uh, 16 and i went to muscle shows and played on a record uh, by a guy named freddie north he was a yeah i, I yeah oh, really you know freddie when i was looking at your discography and stuff i went and checked out that song uh <laughs> don't take her she's all i've got yeah and man you're you're like totally recognizable on there and so you're 16 at that point yeah yeah exactly and uh thrilled to you know i think we were probably paid 25 bucks for a session you know <laughs> <laughs> this was the old days man was that done in muscle shoals yes at um if i'm correct i think it was at quinby studios which i don't believe is there anymore um it was okay. owned by a guy named quinn ivy and they called it quinby but um Anyway, so, yeah, I got to, you know, back then, now, Steve, you, you can relate to this and some of your listeners, I'm sure, as well. Things are so different now. You know, you got a studio in your house uh, and everybody can make a record. But back then, it was, you want to make a record, man. You want to look at that thing and hold it in your hand, a little <laughs> 45 RPM single and, and, uh, or an LP. 
And that was, that was everything. It was everything. God, I want to be on a record, you know, and I want to hear it mm-hmm. on the radio. And so that was the first one. And it did very well. I mean, it was a gold record, uh, heard it on the radio. Yeah, quite a lot. And so that gave me a lot of encouragement and maybe a little bit of confidence to say, Hey, I can do this. And, uh, so to, to, you know, go forward a little bit uh, as the years went on, as I'm 17, uh, 16, 17, I realized that Muscle Shoals, as great as it was, it, it already had the older, more experienced musicians in place. You know, you had the Swampers, right? You know, Jimmy Johnson yeah. and Roger Hawkins, David Hood, and uh, Barry Beckett, fantastic player. Uh, Clayton yeah. Ivey, another great player up there. And so, you know, Spooner. those guys were going to get the first call sessions. Uh, whatever I got would would be breadcrumbs, you know. And so yeah. I thought, well, let me look around here. And I, I had heard about Capricorn Studios, and I had a, a yeah. contact there in Macon, Georgia, and uh, my mentor and good friend, Paul Hornsby. And he was an hourglass guy. He was an hourglass. Uh, he wound up producing Marshall Tucker and Charlie Daniels and Wet Willie and some others. Um, he's still a friend today and I still use his studio in Macon from time to time. He's got a studio called Muscadine, but, uh, Paul Paul had mentored me in Tuscaloosa. Uh, You mentioned the hourglass. It was after the hourglass broke up. Uh, Paul came to Tuscaloosa and started teaching guitar lessons and playing in bands. And we got hooked up and he was just really great to me. He very much encouraged me to sing, which was, um, you know, uh, was important. And, uh, so Paul had gotten the call to go to Macon to produce and to play on records. And I was losing my mentor, you know, so I said, I got to go over there and check this thing out. Myself and Charlie Hayward, Charlie is a great bass player. He's played with Charlie Daniels now for like, you know, 30 something years or better. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and I were playing in bands with Paul and, so I said, well, let's go over there, Charlie. So we hopped in my 65 old Cutlass station wagon, went over and <laughs> uh, had a tour, you know, saw the studio, which was a state-of-the-art studio at the time. They, they had, of course, yeah. the record label offices. Um, and by the way, that's where I met my uh, wife-to-be, and we're still together now after 46 years. She was working. Amazing. Uh, yeah, she was an assistant uh, to the vice president of Capricorn Frank Center. And, uh, yeah. you know, the doors of the office open and there's this gorgeous creature sitting behind the desk. I said, this looks good. <laughs> I like this place. <laughs> but so, um, the short of it is I moved to Macon. I started playing in bands and, uh, doing a little bit of session work. And, uh, let's see, Alex Taylor was the first uh, major artist that I got to go on tour with. We were six of us in the back of a, uh, Ford LTD station wagon. He's James Taylor's brother. Yes, he's uh, the he's deceased now, but he was the elder brother of James Livingston, Kate, Hugh, uh, all the Taylor family. As I was saying, there was uh, six of us in the band, uh, including the um, the road manager, and all of us were traveling in the in a Ford LTD station wagon. And man, we drove all over the United States with that thing, and up into Canada. And that was my uh-huh. first exposure to that type of touring. And uh, you know, we, we were playing very cool clubs. Uh, we did a, occasional uh, opening up for, I can recall, we, we opened up for uh, Jefferson Starship um, and, oh, yeah. you know, occasionally for the Allman Brothers or, or whoever. And 
you know, then it led to what we were talking about earlier about the, uh, working on Greg's mm-hmm. first record and, and then eventually the, the Alma Brothers, uh, Brothers and Sisters. Can you tell me about your experience with Phil Walden? He's he's a he's a really interesting character. Was he uh, like a? Did you work with him regularly? And do you have any interesting memories of, of that guy? You know, I always revered uh, Phil. Uh, there others that may have different opinions about Phil Walden, but I love the guy. <laughs> I, you know, oh yeah, he could. Uh, he had a short temper, and you know, sometimes you'd walk in the office and you'd hear him uh, with expletives uh, all over the phone shouting into it. He might be talking to Bill Graham or, you know, some promoter up in New York. Or, <laughs> yeah. And he just didn't mind, you know, getting down with it. And I, uh-huh. my opinion was that he was always looking after the artist, had the best interest. Oh, that's of, cool. Yeah, best interest of, of the artist at heart. Now, you know, were there some tricks uh, in, on the financial end? Eh, probably a little bit, you know, that... Uh-huh. Uh, he, he might, you know, should have uh, uh, done things a different way. But uh, I thought he was a gregarious character. You know, he, he just, he had a lot of charisma. Uh, he did look after the artist. Um, and, you know, let's face it. I mean, he, by the time Brothers and Sisters hit, we were playing stadium shows and he was negotiating yeah, big deals. We were flying in a big private plane. And uh, so he, he had it going on for us. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now, another uh, another gig that you've mentioned that's like pre-almonds and stuff, and I'd just like to ask you about is uh, is your gig with Dr. John. And that's something I wasn't actually familiar with until just like recently when I was reading more uh, up about you. Um, how did the Dr. John thing come about? And, and what was your role in that band? Obviously, he was 
playing piano. So were you like the organ player and how did you navigate that? And that's exactly what happened. Uh, to back up just a little bit, um, after I think two and a half years with Alex Taylor that we were talking about, uh, Alex had a falling out with Phil Walden and decided he was not going to tour anymore. And so we were a band without an artist. And Phil had just signed Dr. John to a management uh, agreement. Oh. And, and Mac, okay. uh, of course, Mac Rebenack is Dr. John's real name. And Mac had yeah. just released the right, uh, well, I think the, uh, the record, the LP was called In the Right Place. And, of course, it had the hit Right Place, Wrong Time on it. And he needed a band. So, you know, Phil said, well, why don't you guys, uh, uh, Mac is coming to town. Why don't you guys audition for him down at the studio? And we did. And, oh, man, there's some incredible memories. He was a tough task master. You know, he was, uh, he would say, man, y'all ain't got that second line thing down, man. Y'all got to get with a funk here, man. Y'all playing too straight, baby. You know, we, we got to get down here. And, uh, <laughs> He, uh, he kind of whipped us into shape over a period of time. We did get the gig, obviously. And uh, yeah. you're right. I was on the Hammond B3 uh, 90% of the time, but there was a couple of songs that he wanted to play guitar on. You know, he started out as a guitar player. Oh, right. And, yeah, uh, yeah, he's a great guitar player. So when he would jump on the guitar, I'd jump behind the piano. But what was so great, as you can imagine, is that I got to watch, listen, and learn to a New Orleans master, you know? So that was a, uh, I call it my college education. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you, can you just go into a bit of detail about what it is specifically that as a piano player, you found so uh, unique and interesting about Dr. John and the whole New Orleans thing. And, and, you know, you mentioned learning from him just by watching him. Uh, could you tell me specifically some of the things that were really uh, influential about his playing? Well, sure. Um, I think most of your listeners kind of understand the, um, you know, the technique or, well, understand the sound of New Orleans piano when you're talking about Professor Longhair. You know, these were all the pioneers. And of course, Mac was in New Orleans and studied under these guys. And so, you know, specifically, it has a lot to do with um, the rhythmic uh, nature between left and right hand. It also has a lot to do with voicings, uh, chord voicings. Um, you know, when you look at a song like Tipitina or Ico Ico or, um, you know, those, those typical uh, New Orleans songs, so they're very rhythmic. Uh, you, oftentimes you have a bass line on the left hand that's kind of quirky and sporadic, and then the right hand you're doing some trills and, and uh, bits um, up top, you know. If you listen to any of those great New Orleans masters, and, and you know, there's a lot of current ones um, uh, as well. Uh, I'm trying to think of um, John Cleary is a great example. Yeah, he's fantastic. He yeah. is, Now, here's an Englishman, okay, but he migrated at some point to New Orleans, and he soaked that culture up, and, man, he made it his own. And He's one of the greatest current contemporary uh, uh, piano players in the world. I mean, I just love the guys playing. You know, it's a certainly a style of music. Now, I've absorbed a good bit of it, but, you know, I've never lived in New Orleans. I didn't make it my primary style of playing. You know, I kind of use it from time to time when I think it's appropriate. Uh, 
But I love that music. I love that kind of the piano play. Now, you seem to me, like, obviously, like, I really recognize your piano style very quickly, your organ style as well. Uh, I know a lot of the keyboard players that I know and that I've worked with really um, associate themselves with one one or the other. Like, the really good ones seem to be dedicated to one or the other. You're not so much like that. I, I wonder if you, in your mind, maybe at that time, like in your late teens, early 20s, did you consider yourself more of an organ or piano player, or were you evenly comfortable on both? You know, it was always both. Uh, you know, I, I bought my first Hammond B3. Uh, you know, before the Hammond, it was uh, the Farfisa. I had a Farfisa organ, you know. In the oh, Tus- cool. I love Tuscaloosa those. Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and then I would, uh, you know, the Almond Joys, which, of course, was a precursor to Hourglass, precursor to Almond Brothers Band with Greg, Greg and Dwayne. The Almond Joys played in Tuscaloosa often, and Greg was using a Vox uh, Continental organ at the yeah. time. And so, you know, I was fascinated by these instruments and toyed around with them, but it was eventually the B3 that I fell in love with. And uh, mm-hmm. bought my first B3 uh, probably in oh, 69 or 70 uh, as I was coming to Macon and uh, okay. starting to work. And, and Capricorn Studios had a great B3. Uh, so, but I've yeah, always yeah. felt, you know, fairly comfortable on both. You know, to me, it's what is the song asking you to do? Uh, yeah. One or the other or both, you know. With Dr. John, he's obviously like an incredible piano player. And your role is on another keyboard. You've also had that same experience with the opposite, I guess, with Greg being Greg Allman being a an organ player, and I'm I'm guessing you you leaned heavily, obviously, more on the piano with the Almonds. But with in the case of Doctor John, how do you navigate? Like he's not exactly a subtle player; he's going full tilt a lot of the time. How do you deal with being an organ player that's sort of you know in the in a comparable range sonically? What's your secret to fitting in in that situation? Well, first of all, uh, Mac instructed me quite a lot uh you know oh, cool. he, he, he would he would physically come over to the b3 and say look chucky you know ch- try a little something like this man and you know he'd, <laughs> he'd play and and he was also quite good with the draw bars by the way uh he, he had some mm. really interesting draw bar settings when you listen to a song like mama Roo. uh so anyway he he taught me a lot directly uh about that. And of course, you know, we were there to support him. I, I wasn't going to jump out and try to do a whole bunch of Hammond solos. Uh, uh, he was so great to work with, though, man. You know, it was so much fun. And the, the all of us in that band learned a great deal from Mac that we, I'm sure, all carry on today. I bet. Yeah. Did you go straight from playing with Dr. John to working with Greg Allman on the laid back record? Or was there, was there other years and things like that in between? It was pretty much. Uh, Straight into it. What happened was uh, we finished a tour with Mac. Um, he wanted to pull off the road for a while, so we were, you know, out of work, <laughs> unemployed musicians. Yeah, uh, sure. Went, uh, we all know that story, don't we? Uh, <laughs> from time to time. Well, anyway, I went back to Tuscaloosa to see my mom and hang out with her for a while, and I think I was there maybe a week or ten days. The phone rings. And it's Johnny Sandlin, the producer that I unfortunately deceased now, but uh, who I learned so much from and who produced so many great records. Well, anyway, Johnny called me up and uh, he said, listen, we're doing this record for Greg and uh, we'd like for you to be on it. So I absolutely jumped at that and went back over to Macon and, and, you know, cranked up a, a whole new deal. 
Right, right. And so sort of the, I mentioned like the opposite there where Greg is the organ player. Were you just playing piano at that point? Yeah, piano. Fender Rhodes was in vogue at the time. And so uh, I had a Fender Rhodes and used it on some of the instrumentals. And of course, it was also prominent on some of Greg's uh, solo records. So, um, you know, I was, I would say, oh, 65% uh, piano. And and mm-hmm. the rest, thirty five percent, maybe on uh, Thunder Roads. Was Greg fairly instructive to you about what he was looking for in a piano player? Because obviously, you know, same thing there. You don't want to be stepping all over him, but he's more of a passive player than Doctor John would have been. So, were you sort of was your role clearly to be more of a prominent feature? You know, man, they they were so great. Uh, right from the get-go, once we started recording uh, Brothers and Sisters, and even in, on Greg's record, uh, they yeah. were looking—they were looking for me to do what I do, you know. And they said there wasn't any instruction, so to speak. It was like, a, "Hey, man, what do you think? You know, what do, what do you feel uh-huh. like you ought to be doing on this?" And you know, ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, that's that's the way it went. So it was a lot of freedom, which I loved. You know, I. I was not under the gun to do anything, uh, you know, that, that didn't feel comfortable. And they right. they were very encouraged to me. Barry Oakley, God rest his soul. Barry was the first guy that uh, really reached out and went out of his way to make me feel comfortable in the band. You know, I was I was 20 years old when I got that gig. Wow. Yeah. So, so he was always, hey man, you come, you know, everybody treating you right, everything okay. Uh, anything bothering you. Um, he was just brilliant (laughs) and all the guys were great to me. So they were a little older than you, like maybe three or four years or something. Yeah. I think Greg was probably, you know, eight years older than me. Uh, most of them were seven to eight years older than me. So you're the kid, you get into the Allman brothers. It's a crazy period in, in their history because Dwayne had just died. I would imagine they'd sort of thought about, breaking up or not and they decide to keep going you step in instead of a replacement for Dwayne really and um that Brothers and Sisters album was huge for me it was like one of my favorite records when I when I was starting out playing music and your role in that record is massive as, as well I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about those sessions and what it was like and how how the recording went down like how live it was and how much influence by jamming and stuff was going on or if it was very structured it's kind of more of a structured record than what they were used to making so I'm just curious about their about the process well um first of all let's uh remember what the band was going through when Dwayne died Dwayne was the undisputed leader of the band. It was his band, you know, and uh, of course everyone was equal in it, but but he was the undisputed leader of it. You know, the the upfront spokesperson and, and, uh, you know, bundle of energy. Everybody loved Dwayne. He was on all those other great records, Layla and, and, uh, you know, he did all those wonderful recording sessions and muscle shows with uh, Wilson Pickett and Aretha and, yeah, so Dwayne dies in his motorcycle accident and everyone is just deflated. I mean, the band, of course, but everyone in Macon, Georgia, because he was not only the leader of the Almond Brothers band, he was the leader of the whole outfit, you know? And, yeah. uh, I, I can't claim that I knew Dwayne that well. I didn't, 
but I admired him so much as we all did, all the musicians and artists that were around Capricorn at the time. And so just, just horrible, horrible tragedy. Now the band had some obligations on the books to do some concerts. And so after, you know, a short period of grief and a, a decision to carry on, they carried on without a replacement. It was Dickie had to step up and learn the slide parts. And I know that was really, really a challenge for him. Uh, and yeah. I don't, I don't think he was all that comfortable doing it, but he did it admirably and he, you know, he ponied up and did what, what needed to be done. So after, not to mention, he also, he also kind of developed his own slide sound pretty quickly and amazingly. Like it, he's pretty, he's got a really unique take on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. He had to, it was kind of, you know, he was pushing to a corner to, to do that and, and he really did it well. So they, after they finished these obligations, I can't remember, it was like maybe six weeks of, of uh, gigs that they had on the books that they had to fulfill. They came back mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, drained, deflated. Uh, and that's when Greg had made the decision to do a solo record. You know, they said, let's take a break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Greg wants to do this and let's, let's just do something else. Well, you know, as I said to you earlier, uh, I get called in to the laid back sessions. We start working on that. These jam sessions come up. Uh, I don't think they had any idea what they were going to do uh, in terms of, are we going to eventually have another guitar player? Are we going to do mm-hmm. something else? Are we going to have just a five piece? And I think it was during the course of these jam sessions that they said, you know, I, I guess I was fitting in fairly well. I was enjoying myself. I'll tell you, that. I was having a blast. You know, <laughs> as I said earlier, sometimes it would just say, okay, A minor, let's go. Uh, uh, e minor, uh-huh. you know, um, B flat. And, and we'd just start playing and didn't really have a direction. And sometimes somebody would go to a different change and would follow. And they were very experimental jam sessions. And they went really, really well. And so, uh, again, after a period of time of this, about three weeks or so, uh, I think they felt like, wow, this is an interesting way to go. And, and you know, it's not – you can never replace Dwayne. So why even try? Let's go to a different instrument. And Chuck seems to – to be enjoying it. And uh, let's see if we can move forward. And that's the way it worked. And so did you hop into the studio right away? Like was brothers and sisters really early in that process? Yeah. You know, it was almost um, nonstop between laid back and brothers and sisters. uh, Because once the decision was made for me to come into the band, then it was like, well, what's the next step? we got to do a record. You know, we need, we need a new record. Yeah. And um, Dickie had the bulk of the songs because Greg had taken some of those songs that he felt were maybe not quite as appropriate for the Allman Brothers band and recorded them for his first solo records for Laid Back. And uh, so he exhausted a good bit of the material that he had, and he had less less, uh, writers on Brothers and Sisters that he might have had otherwise. But uh, Dickie stepped up, Mm -hmm. you know. and He sure did. Yeah, man, and we had... uh, you know, uh, we had Jessica on the thing and, and, um, we had Ramblin' Man and, and, uh, which was kind of a shock to Huge. all of us that we could do a, a country song and make it sound rock and roll, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, it all worked out, you know, um, Come and Go Blues was a great song, uh, that Greg had, I thought. And then we had the blues co- cover of, uh, Jelly Jelly. You mentioned Jessica and that for me, like I, I'm a guitar player. And 
that solo to me, it was like a huge thing. Like I know every note of that solo. It's long. <laughs> it's like, that was like a, a, a really signature song. Uh, it's incredible. Like, uh, can you tell me what you remember about the actual session for, for that song? But like, was that done live? Did you work on that solo or was that completely improvised? Well, uh, I can tell you that Vicky uh, was, had been listening to Django Reinhardt uh, records. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the famous gypsy guitar player, jazz sure. guitar player. Yeah. And for anyone that knows that style, it's a very bouncy kind of uh, chordal guitar style. He was watching his daughter at play, a toddler at the time, Jessica, in his house. Mm-hmm. And he was listening to uh, to Django and he turned off the uh, the record and picked up the guitar and started playing that intro. Uh, the guitar intro, the acoustic little bouncy yep. intro. So that came first. And then he put the melody together and, and he brought it to the band uh, fairly structured, but you know, I mean, the melody was certainly there uh, and the, and the, and the chord changes, but you know, we had to put an arrangement together. So that's you know, when we were talking earlier about uh, when it's time to stand up and, and say something, if you feel like you have an idea that has merit well, you know, I came up with most of the transitions. Uh, the um, uh, there was the okay. break, the breakdown that we did, and, and go, that goes yep. into the piano solo, and then the uh, little figure that goes from the at the end of the piano solo into the guitar solo. And in terms of the solo itself, uh, I worked out the first bit, and then yeah, I would say the first maybe eight bars. And, uh, and then I just kind of let it flow, but I wanted to have something to, to feel comfortable starting off with, you know, to say, okay, here I yeah, am. Yeah. And, and so that little first <laughs> eight bars or so, uh, did the trick and then it let me, let me, you know, explore and, and go where, wherever it took me. Was there any discussion about how long it would be, or did it just turn out to be like that? Cause it would, it just evolved into this big, long section. You know, the guys were like, Hey, play as long as you want to, man. You know, <laughs> it could have been longer. I probably should have made it longer, but, uh, no, I, you know, here's another thing we can talk about, you know, in this day and time, we have a lot of jam bands and a lot of them are really, really great. And even in the days of the almonds, when we would do a song like Whippin' Post or, uh, uh-huh. you know, some of the others like uh, maybe uh, High Falls or some of those instrumentals, uh, they did go on a long, long time. Uh, I prefer to make your statement, you know, make it as long as it needs to be. But to me, a, a more concise statement for a solo is, is a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think it's necessary to, you know, just go on and on and on. So, you know, I'm kind of cognizant, uh, cognizant of that when I do solo with mean. anybody. Yeah. That solo, it is lengthy, but it's never non-eventful or boring. Like I could, I could probably sing you the entire thing, <laughs> which is a cool. <laughs> well, you're very kind to say so, Steve. Um, you know, it's, I, I, what, I'm just so pleased that that song and that record um, and that era uh, of the band has yeah. stood the test of time. Uh, it's great to turn on a, a radio and still hear one of those songs. It, it just, it's a big thrill. You know, it's been a lot of years now. I mean, that was 1972. Right. 
72 going into 73. I think the release was in 73 of both laid back and brothers and sisters. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and, and it was a huge record. It was their biggest record up to that point in their career. Um, I assume that was a bit of a surprise. Like nobody was probably expecting the commercial success of, the, of that record. Am I right about that? I think, uh, you know, they had done well with uh, Live at Fillmore East and then, of course, Eda Peach uh, during the time that Dwayne died. Uh, and Eda Peach was quite successful. So I think they reckoned that uh, they had a pretty good shot. I don't think they felt like it was going to be a number one record, which it was. You know, Well Rambling Man mm-hmm. uh, was, I think, number two. But I, the Brothers and Sisters uh, LP was number one for, I can't remember, about three, four weeks, maybe. The touring at the time, you were doing a lot of road work and, and you know, the stories are pretty uh, common about things getting pretty out of control. There was a lot of uh, disagreement and fighting between Greg and Dickie and stuff. Was that stuff that was like really prevalent and present on the road or were you just sort of um, doing your own thing and not really being aware of too much of the strife that was building within the band at that point? Hey, dude, I was trying to be the ambassador, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it's it's not dissimilar to what I do with with the Stones these days. You know, it's um, really you, to just try to keep the ball rolling. You know, if, if tense moments occur, and try to figure out well what's going on here. Why why is this this way? So what can I do to let us all get beyond it and focus on the music? You know, uh, that's yeah. pretty much always been my philosophy. And you know, you're right. There was all kind of ex- excess going on. Uh, and, and, you know, people got burnt out. So by the time that, uh, let's see, it must've been 1976 rolled around, uh, you know, it, it, and then you had this whole drug bust thing with Scooter Herring, who was a road manager and, you know, Greg was offered immunity to testify against him. Uh, that put Greg in a horrible position because he, you know, he would have had to go to jail if he didn't testify against his friend. And, and so that right. was, you know, a hard pill to swallow for everybody and things just got out of hand and burn out and it was time to go to break it up and go on to something else. And that's when we, uh, three of us out of the band, J-Mo and, uh, Lamar Williams and myself formed C-Level. We brought in, uh, yeah. my old pal, uh, Jimmy Knowles that had worked with, uh, me with Dr. John and with Alex Taylor and, uh, he fit the bill nicely and we embarked on uh, on a whole different direction then. Oh yeah, and that whole new direction that Chuck is referring to is his band Sea Level that you just heard, and uh, they made a bunch of really interesting records, and that is where the story is going to cut off for now. We're going to pick it up next week with Sea Level, which was sort of the bridge in between his time with the Allman Brothers and from when the Rolling Stones phoned him at home as he was gigless and considering hanging it up altogether crazy. Anyway, please join me next week. Thanks so much for listening this week. I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, this is just too interesting to cut down, so I'm, I'm just going to uh, cut it off here. This is part one. One week from today, part two will be available, and then we'll go back to the monthly episode thing after that. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you in one week for part two of Chuck Lavelle. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. <laughs>